Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans talk about a different rock album every week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. Your co-host, John Carson. And this is Mike Gavigan. And this week, we're going to be taking an in-depth look at the Kiss album, Dynasty. Before we do that, we like to play two or three songs that each of us have been involved in to let you know what we we do and what we're up to. So, uh, John, what song would you like to play? Uh, let's do I Rather Would Go. Apparently, that is on some sort of very weird indie music chart right now. Um, and it's been added to 93 different radio stations across the country. So, All right. I know. Not that I'm rich or anything, but it is... <laughs> that I'm ever going to see anything from it, but it's still pretty cool. Very so, cool. And Spotify playlists are adding us without us even knowing about it. It's very fun. That's awesome. Great. tune picked out um yeah i've been uh enjoying again the day fortune documentary okay uh, reminds me of playing live shows and, yeah let's, let's go with that one which i'm sorry you froze up when you uh, named the song sorry um midnight radio 
That's so funny that you say that. Actually, Sherry just suggested we do that one. So, uh, ah. good song. I like that song. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so this is Midnight Radio with uh, Mike on vocals and uh, me doing the lead. <laughs> of super kiss disco kiss um right this album do people hate this album i think the original diehard fans have mixed feelings about it you know i i think i was made for loving you obviously was a big hit exposed them to a lot of people that uh probably weren't listening to them before but i think Mm -hmm. a lot of the hardcore uh 
Kiss fans up until that point found it very alienating that they were thought they were turning into kind of a, a pop band or a disco band. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I, I mean, I was made for loving you is actually, if you go on to iTunes, it's their number one song to listen to, you know what I mean? Like it's their top song that people search on, um, Apple music. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's probably their catchiest song ever. Right. I mean, it's, it's a quite a piece of ear candy. Yeah. Right. And I, I mean, I love it. It gives me, I mean, um, well, go ahead. Do you want to add anything else about introducing the album before we get into the song? No, I, I think, you know, just generally speaking, uh, we should say that um, as a nod to Peter, they used Vinny Poncia as the producer, who, of course, produced his uh, solo album. And then, ironically, they decided that Peter's playing wasn't up to snuff, so he only plays drums on the track Dirty Living. Um, listening to the album, I, just a couple overall things about Vinny's production style. Um I think he got really good vocal performances out of all the guys. I mean, the vocals on this album are really solid. Mm. Um, in general, I don't like what he did with the lead guitar, though. You know, like it sounds heavily filtered as if you're listening mm. to lead guitar through like a telephone. There's almost no mid range to it. It almost it's like he's treating the lead guitar parts as like a special effect rather than something that, you know, your ear can really gravitate to. And that might be fine for one song, but I mean, he does that to almost every single song on this album. Mm. I hear it. Yeah, it almost sounds a little more distant, yeah, or uh, in, distant in a way. Or you're not, you're not as uh, you know, up, up, up front and present. Yeah, I think I think point. that's because he EQ'd the mid, the hell out of the, yeah. you know, just dropped the mid range EQ severely. Um, and also, too, I was doing some research on the uh, you know, the accident that you know, the Peter had, and, and that definitely did happen um, during filming of uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom during May in '78, when you know, I guess he and, and Fritz, their uh, tour manager, were in a car wreck. Um, but then there was I also found something else later on that I guess um, somewhere I, either Kiss was in the studio recording Dynasty or they were doing something else. But you know, I guess Peter also supposedly punched a like a glass window or something, and you know got lots of glass shards in his hand. I don't know when that happened. I'm just still trying, still trying to get to the bottom of, you know, why he didn't play in the album and what was it, you know, why did they have to say, okay, you're only playing on one track when, you know, year previous he was in fine shape, you know, on all accounts. So I, I don't know. I mean, we weren't there, but I was just trying to figure out there's something else that happened between Kiss Me, the Phantom and that accident and, you know, Dynasty, but I hadn't been able to find really anything other than the fact that I guess Peter punched a glass door window and, well, that reminds that reminds me. There is the story that he showed up, and for the first time, he made a big deal about how he had written out all the charts, the songs and charts, and you know he was you know approaching it like a professional studio musician, which he had never done before. And then supposedly he he went through all this uh, theater, and then he couldn't you know couldn't play very well. So, yeah, yeah, I'd heard that too. I don't, I mean, um, is that true or is that apocryphal? I mean, that's in Paul Stanley's book. I don't know if that's actually, is that actually true? But of course, Paul Stanley tears him a new one, you know, and makes him feel her- terrible. Yeah, you know, uh, that reminds me, somebody posted a quote about the Peter Chris solo album from Paul Stanley that I thought I just have to, I have to mention because Paul is just the king of snark. And, and the quote about the album was, 
The first time that I heard the Peter Chris solo album was the last time that I heard the Peter Chris <laughs> solo album. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> Man. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you want to get uh, get on the album track by track then? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, first track, probably the most important track on the album in terms of their career. Uh, I Was Made for Loving You, co-write with Desmond Child, who, of course, would go on from this to uh, write colossal hits, uh, not only for Kiss, but for Aerosmith and Bon Jovi and Alice Cooper and lots of other people. Yeah. Uh, well, it's definitely, I mean, the story behind it is Paul, what, constantly going to Studio 54, decided he wanted to write a song with uh, 126 beats per minute, just like the mm -hmm. disco song, sat down and wrote it. Um, all about his one night stands that he encountered while working at, uh, while going to um, Studio 54. Yeah. Um, it's, it really is awesome. Like this is one of the few Kiss songs that gives me chills whenever I hear it. I know that's not a very popular opinion, but I do love it. Uh, the the syncopated bassline, which I've heard people say that Gene didn't actually play. I don't know if that's true though. I mean, Supposedly I've, I've Paul actually plays so. the bassline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who is it? What, so, what Paul, did he say? Paul's actually supposedly played it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, it's actually a really complicated bassline for Gene. Um, it's probably, you know what I mean? It's probably the hardest to sort of, like, if you really listen to it, it's not as easy as it sounds. You know what I mean? It's definitely a little bit syncopated, a little bit off. So it's definitely like a pretty actual hard bass line. Um, even though it's using that root, you know, root octave, root octave that is there in all disco songs or in a lot of different songs. It sounds um, like, it sounds like the kind of part that if they were a different kind of band, they would just, uh, would have sequenced on a keyboard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah. And then the um, my favorite part of the song is the bridge with the you know the digga 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 and they start and the laser sounds like I don't know how much that is informed by Star Wars but I swear to God I saw the stupid I I saw the Scooby Doo episode Scooby meets Kiss or whatever and they do I was made for loving you and that bridge comes in and they start shooting lasers from their hands and stuff like that I'm literally like chills went down my spine I love this song you know what I mean I mean I like the way the way Paul's delivery, the how he starts with the tonight, you know what I mean, and all that kind of stuff. It's really one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs. I know that's not popular with the rest of Kiss fans, but I, I love it. Well, it was. I think there was a, a backlash against it at the time, but I think nowadays it's pretty well generally accepted. I mean, Gene talks about how they could play Hellfest in Germany or whatever, and all these guys that are into you know death metal and speed metal, you know, all jump up and down and sing along, you know, do 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 do, do right. you know. So right. um, yeah, I think at this point people have have gotten over it, and there's no longer worried about you know, disco killing rock and roll or whatever. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's like I said, it's one of my favorite songs. I mean, the, yeah, the vocal harmonies on it, everything about it. There's really nothing wrong with that song. Yeah. Now the, the interesting thing to me is although Paul talks about the fact that, you know, oh yeah, I just thought I, I, it'd be easy to write a song like that. I'll, you know, I, I dashed something off in five minutes and, you know, we had this big hit with it and who knew, you know, um, <laughs> that may be true, but 
they certainly spent a long time arranging it and working out the details because there are bootlegs of them rehearsing to record this song where they literally will say like, okay, well, what if we did the first four bars kick only? And then they'll record that and they'll play it back and they'll say, hmm, maybe. What if we did eight bars kick only and then we went into the snare? And then they play it, they record it, they play it back, and they go, hmm, what if we did a fill going into the first snare? You know, I mean, like, they are so meticulous and disciplined, wow. and they spend so mm -hmm. much time arranging the song, it's, it's like, unbelievable. So, you know, I, I think it's funny that, that that's the case. <laughs> um, there's, you know, it, this is one of the few songs that we can really hear the difference as to how much a difference the producer makes, because if you compare this take on the song to the take uh, that Eddie Kramer did and, and the performance that Kiss gave it on Kiss Alive 3, mm. you know, it's, it's a different beast. I mean, it's the same song, yeah. but Paul is singing up th those verses like an octave higher, and it's, it's so much more aggressive and intense. Funny story. I was working as a roadie at Signet Sound and Desmond Child had come in to uh, do a session with somebody and he had a break and he didn't have a car. He didn't drive. Um, he needed somebody to give him a lift down to check out the antique stores down on La Brea. <laughs> if you guys know where that is. And oh, yeah. uh, so I said, hey, I'll take him. And this is around 93. So I still had the CD for Kiss Alive 3 in my uh in my car and i said hey have you heard this yet and i played him the live version of i was made for loving you and he said wow he goes i like that better than our version he goes that that's got some balls to it you know <laughs> ah. yeah. damn okay well all right yeah that's awesome yeah, I think it's yeah, yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting to think about Paul sort of you know wanting to dare himself to you know to write a song like this and to be able to be that you know um, crafty and skilled and to be able to do it you know in an effective way you know good, good job Paul, um, but it's funny to you know get another you know try to read up on other band members' takes on it. I read a funny quote from Ace where I think he said um, you know I don't think the song had anything to do with Kiss other than Paul wrote it and we played on it. So he's kind of saying, you know, whatever. It, there's nothing new with us, but I was on it and the end of story. But I also found something, too, where I think Vinny had indicated that uh, the verse or the verses had been written, and Vinny claims to have written the chorus to this song. Mm. Could be. Um, and apparently Anton Fig came up, you know, suggested the idea about the, you know, the laser sounds or the gunshots, whatever you want to call the cracks, them. cracks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, it's such a strong track, you know. I mean, it, it's relentless the way it comes in with, you know, the, the, the bass drum and the bass. And, you know, that's like you yeah. said, John, that's a that's a tough bass line to do, you know, for you know, four bars, let alone do it for a whole song. Well, it's I was just going to say the fact that it's a tough bass line. I do remember there was a comment from, I believe, uh, I don't know if it was Neil Bogart or Bill LaCoyne, where they talked about like how the song they didn't feel that the song was coming across well on the dynasty tour they didn't feel the band was playing it well and they said this is terrific we have a hit song and a band that can't pull it off live you know uh, wow well okay. i can i can totally believe that i mean if you listen to that bass line I'm, i don't know if it's i mean 
it may be sort of an uninformed, but it's not as simple as it sounds. You know what I mean? There's a lot going on in it, even though it's really just root and octave, but the timing on it and all that kind of stuff will definitely throw you. I mean, once you get it the first time, you know, you got to practice it is all I'm saying. So, I mean, I could see that they would learn it eventually by just practicing it. But I, I you know, I remember trying to sort of teach it to myself and being like, no, no, it should just be, but it's not. <laughs> it's mm. So, yeah. So, sorry, Mike, yeah. you, you were saying. I was going to say, too, that um, the, the, the chord changes in the bridge, to me, are always have been something that stood out to me. Those chord changes, though. <laughs> chords are just you know when do you hear those in a rock song you know let alone you know rock yeah. disco songs but i call it that mm-hmm. um but i love to how after the the uh, the bridge happens and the band kicks back in paul does this sort of breathy yeah <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> he's, he's in the moment at that point so um you know cool and then the guitar solo is as quick as it is uh into the point it, it's so ace those are ace licks oh, yeah 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 that's the the guitar solo is perfectly tasteful yeah yeah um, and again, too, I mean, I found this, you know, to be consistent through at least, you know, let's say, you know, 60% of the record. There's a lot of this sort of like disco triplet feel in a lot of these songs on the record. Obviously, this is, you know, a prime example of that. Um, but again, you know, super strong track to, to start out with. And I found it interesting, too, that when you look at live versions that you, you Dave, you mentioned, the, you know, uh, the quote about, you know, great, they got a hit song, they can't perform it. When they uh, played on the Dynasty Tour, I think they they put, they put, they, Paul used a capo in the second fret. So at that point, because they're, they're tuned down a half step, they would have been playing it in, that'd be F. So I don't know why they would feel the need to sort of play it at a higher, you know, at, at a key that was higher than the, the recording. Hmm. Maybe it had to do with the fact that Paul's vocal delivery was so, you know, sort of low end, you know, not really belting it out like he did on, on the, the versions on Live 3. Maybe it was just something that didn't come across. Maybe, yeah, the key. low vocals in the verses weren't cutting through or something. Maybe, maybe I just you know, found it interesting that they you know, made a, a notable change in the, the key that they were going to play the mm-hmm. song tour. So, but yeah, great song. Yeah, you know, I, you know I, I remember as a kid hearing this on the radio. I think it was at like my step grandfather's house, and I was in the game room playing bumper pool with my sister, and we just happened to have the radio station on. And this song came on, and at that point, it was like you know the, the late mid mid eighties. You know, and the song was still being played. You know, it hadn't gone out of out of fashion at that point. It's still something that was you know to be played on what was you know Pittsburgh radio at the time. Yeah, yeah, great tunes. Uh, yeah. Good enough for Scooby-Doo, man. Absolutely. I love that Scooby-Doo special. You know, there's a lot of, like, animation in that yeah. special that's very, like, like Kirby-esque. Yeah. No, I love... I, I now, there, there, no, sure we talk, we're not talking about the... Watching it with me, but I made him watch it. Is this different from the, the Scooby-Doo episode where they visit the the record uh, the recording studio and there's the guy that looks like Gene and he's I think his name's Ace Decade or something. This is something that came out later, right? Yeah, this is something that came out. I don't know when it was when the last five years for sure. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and all of Kiss was down to Comic Con to promote it, and it was a whole thing. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. I missed out on that. Okay. You've never seen it? Oh, you should see it because no, no. in some ways it's almost like a part two to Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park. So. Yeah, it's totally that, actually. It's very cool. Yeah. I got it on DVD. I'll lend you my copy. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Um, All right. Um, Special uh, rock album analyst screening on Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But there's all kinds of, like, cool little in-jokes making fun of Paul Stanley's painting, and it's it's good. It's good. Uh, Oh, great. 
Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So song number two, 2000 Man. Um, only nine songs on this album. Uh, and this one is a cover by the Rolling Stones. So. Which I did not know until I did research on this album, which I can't believe that I've been listening to this song that long. And I consider myself a Rolling Stones fan and never put it together. So I like it a lot. It's a great song. I love Ace's vocal delivery. I love the, you know, I mean, the lyrics are fan freaking fantastic. They're really great. Um, and it's they're clever and they stand out. And um, I'm almost a little disappointed that this is not an Ace Pen song, but it still is really good. I find myself singing along to it all the time. Yeah, it, it's a great version. When you hear it, you know, because I think Ace had even quoted as saying that, um, you know, he kind of thought of, in a way that the song was written for him in a way where it's got the spacey theme and it's talking about computers and stuff. And, um, you know, you would think listening to it that it was an Ace Frehley song. But then again, too, when you think about it, this comes from the, the Stones album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, which really was, you know, not a, you know, a fan favorite album. Um, I don't even know if they had any, any singles that charted on that record. But, you know, it's, it's just an odd... You know, it was like their their Sergeant Peppers, if you will. You know, and they just obviously, you know, the Beatles did theirs and the Stones did theirs, and you know, I think you know, Legend shows which one was the stronger of the two records. Um, but I I did some um, checking too. There were a few minor lyric changes that Ace hmm. uh, added. Um, I think he added the words. Uh, it uh, my name is a name is a number. It's on a piece of plastic film. Whereas I think Mick Jagger just says it's my you know uh, my name is a number. It's a piece of plastic film you know slight difference okay um ace yeah. had also uh the words you know uh though i really misuse her um you know whatever and then also hmm. there's some other stuff too where um uh or did they come down crashing the original lyric was you know or do you come down crashing okay and then also yeah, okay. the, the line that ace added which was spacing out and having fun the original line there was all was a big put on oh interesting yeah, interesting. yeah. And then they they turn one last thing on the lyric. In the last chorus, the Stones version is, and you know who's the 2000 man, and your kids, they just won't understand you at all. So, you know, a little different perspective there. But, you know, Ace, obviously, I think the Ace version stands uh, as the stronger of the two with, you know, in terms of the lyrics and um, you know, the cadence of it. Definitely. I mean, the original version is a bit of a mishmash of guitar parts that are at slightly different tempos that are just kind of yeah. kludged together in a Frankenstein kind of way. Um, I think I love Ace's version much better than the original. Like, I think, I mean, Ace, we've talked about this before, but when he really puts his mind to it, nobody can take a cover song and make it his own quite like he can, you know? Yeah. And it's, but it's funny because he's got three songs on this album and in a way, he just kind of continued working in solo album mode, right? Supposedly, he sings the lead vocals, Anton plays drums, he plays all the guitar and bass, I believe, on all three songs. Uh, and he's just kind of using Gene and Paul to sing background vocals on some of them. Yeah. Yeah, which was going to be, you know, a point I was going to make earlier. Um, you know, is this... You know, is this a Kiss album or is it just you know, another solo album to sort of, you know, disguise as a, you know, as a Kiss disc 
a Kiss Rock disco record, you know, in a way, because if you think about it, if Paul's playing bass on most, if not all, of his songs. Gene's playing rhythm guitar on at least uh, one of his songs on the record. Um, the only difference is you have you know Ace's drummer from the the '78 solo album playing. It's almost as if you know people were working in in, um, in sort of different camps as they were with the solo records. I think there was also a quote I read from Stan Penridge where he said that he was in the studio for some of the sessions, and he I think he mentioned that um, never once did he see you know all four of the guys together in the same room working on the same song. That, you know, there's a lot of separation there. So you know. If you think about that, you know, technically, yes, Ace was for sure still sort of working in so um, mode. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I totally buy that. I mean, this whole album sort of feels a little bit like that because the but again, the solo songs that come out are. In many cases, some of the best stuff that you would even hear from their solo albums. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That reminds yes, me, true. before before the end of this week, we have to let everybody, we have to compare homework notes, right? We did make yeah. one best album out of the solo albums? Yes. Okay, so let's not forget. Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else on uh, 2001? Yeah, I, I have one more point, too. We were talking about guitar sounds. Um, for sure, that there's definitely a lot of production with the guitar sounds, but at the same time, there are a couple instances on this record where this, the Ace's guitar sort of really sort of piercing in a way and you know sort of top endy and i know that he had a guitar in his collection called uh the name of the the, the company was Valino, and it was basically an all aluminum guitar it was uh two pieces of aluminum for the body an all aluminum neck um and i read that he had used that guitar on ladies in waiting on dress to kill so mm -hmm. if you listen to the guitars on that track it's really kind of almost like fuzzy and high-endish and I, my guess is that he used that same guitar in this track because if you listen to guitar pan left, there's this real sort of piercing. Uh, you know, which is basically a Bellino type guitar. Um, I, I'm hearing that in a couple places on this record, and particularly some guitar solos later, but on this track, guitar left sounds to me like, you know, that there's a definite different sound there that he that he was using, and I'd, I'd love to know and have the opportunity to ask him if he used that guitar in this track because my, that's my guess that he did. There's a break but, on "Dirty Living" coming up too that is really piercing that I think has that same. Yeah, yeah, for sure, same thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, great song, and you know, I, I I too thought it was an ace song up until a certain point, and then I realized, oh, it's a cover song. Good to know. <laughs> I've even heard the original, and I never put it together, but yeah. <laughs> No, I really have. I just never really put it together. Yeah. All right. So, sure knows something. Uh, again, I love the bass line, but it is, again, it's a little generic, but it's still it's still pretty good. The way that I describe it is it sounds like AM soft rock till the chorus comes in. There's that big, you know, the, the slide, the pick up, you know, pick slide, that's like, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it goes into that great chorus. Uh, the lyrics are, you know, again, not that, they're not all that clever. I mean, I like the idea of, you know, again, it's sort of the older person teaching him something or, you know what I mean? Right. I think, wait, am I, yeah, am I reading that? How did you guys read the lyrics? Now I'm starting to get confused because I think um, actually. Definitely an older woman that, you know. Woman helping him. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I've read an interpretation of the lyrics that says something about, you know, it's about him losing his virginity to this woman. And I don't necessarily get that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely, yeah, definitely, uh, 
an unequal relationship and he's still smitten or whatever. Um, I, you know, there's a couple things about the lyrics. Um, I like the, the, the line, you know, I was starry eyed, um, obviously mm. playing upon the makeup image again, uh, kind of, mm. kind of clever. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that baseline is really cool. It wasn't worked out that way on the original demo. If you hear the original demo, it's, uh, it's not, you know, they definitely improved that and made it a, a major feature of the song. Um, if there's a if there's a criticism I have of the song, well, two things. One, he uses the same rhyme that he used on his solo album for "school" and "full," um, oh. you know. Which, if you're gonna, you know, use the exact same rhyming couplet, maybe don't make it the next album after. Um, that bothered mm-hmm. me as, as a little kid. And you know, the the other thing is that lyrically, the idea that you sure know something. Sounds like you're about to say, okay, well, what is it then? You know, what is this major revelation right, yeah, that Aldous has taught that's, you? That's, it's, again, that's why I feel like the song is a little bit generic because it seems like, I mean, it's like a nice line, but it doesn't really speak. It doesn't stand out as being like an original song. You know what I mean? It seems a little bit generic. In it terms seems of, like it should go to, yeah, everybody's got a dream, you know, but it can't be your love or whatever. I mean, th- there needs to be a revelation there at some point. Otherwise, it's like, I sure know something, but I'm not going to tell you what. Yeah, it's a big secret. Again, it's a shame because it's such a great melody for that chorus. I mean, there's a really hooky, catchy chorus. But yeah, when you really get into the nuts and bolts of you know what the lyrics are, you you you're kind of left you know wanting something something more in terms of you know where it's going. Yes, exactly. Yes, you want more out of it. And again, like I said, it sounds like sort of a generic AM radio rock song until the chorus comes in. And maybe that's what they were trying to do is write another hit. You know what I mean? They were trying to do something, you know, Peter Chris style or something, you know, trying to hit that market. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it shows a more vulnerable Paul than, than we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Agreed. But interesting too, to think, you know, what was the album before this that Paul was working on? It was the solo album. It was pretty raw. It was, just, you know, raw sort of, you know, rehearsing the studio feel and now you get something that is definitely a lot more polished like i think we're saying with the solo album records you know they really they found let's say their niche and what in terms of how they're going to approach you know the next album coming around so you know it's interesting that you know and i think there's there's another song that paul mentioned that he wasn't happy with the way it turned out on this record but this isn't it but point being yeah definitely the verses in this are very you know high production and it's you know definitely guitars aren't you know screaming i think there may be like a leslie or organ speaker on on the guitars and the verses mm. um and then also written interview two where uh, Vinny had mentioned that this he claims this is the his favorite song that he ever wrote with paul hmm okay um hmm. okay yeah but I, john you mentioned the pick slides that come in right before the chorus i think that's a great sort of you know, sort of dramatic pause, you know, to set up, you know, the chorus, because it's, it's like this whizzing noise right. that comes, you know, across the stereo pan, and then you got, you know, that big, huge vocal chorus. Wonderful. Right. And it, it yeah. definitely takes it out of that, like, moment where you're like, this is kind of trashy AM rock, and then it's like, ah, it's Kiss. It's all right. Yeah, and, and then it rocks. The way they sing it, and the way that it gets builds, and all that kind of stuff, it's great. Yeah, and I, yeah, it was um, something that they also did a, so to speak, a video for as well um, around that time, too. I think it might have right. been. Yeah, yeah, Don Kirshner Rock Concert. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely cool. 
Yeah, and now uh, we got yeah we got to talk about the costumes and all the kind of the dynasty costumes. <laughs> but maybe we'll talk about that at the end there, I guess. Okay, sure. we could do that. All right. Okay, so what's next? Okay, Dirty Living. Dirty Living Peter Chris's uh, sole contribution, both vocally and playing drums on the album. Uh, I feel like I liked it more than I wrote down here on my notes. Here, I said I like the bridge. Like, what's the bridge? Where's the bridge? Oh, the yeah, walking kiss encyclopedia. Sorry, where am I here? Yeah, I remember really liking, yeah, yeah, it's like that descending chord structure. I know what you mean, yeah, I'm right, yeah, plugged in. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's that, it's got that yeah, piercing yeah, yeah. Really solo like note. Yeah, the bridge is great. And then again, another really good bass line. You know what I mean? That's actually pretty strong. And there's parts of here where the guitars sound like horns. You know what I mean? They almost sound like they'd be the backup trumpet and saxophone, you know, um, as if it were being like a uh, R&B or even a big band type thing, the way that the guitars come in. Yeah, something about this song reminds me of Miami Vice. I know it predates Miami Vice, but it's right. got that whole, you know, sort of smuggler's blues uh, yep. kind of vibe to it, where it's like this... Swing vibe to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. this this yeah. guy is clearly a drug dealer slash drug addict who's, right. you know, yeah. burning out on life in the big city. And... Um, Although, you know, there's something weird about the, the main riff, that, that main groove, where it's kind of like, I think it's almost intentionally tedious in a way, because it's supposed to be about how much he hates living in the city and being stuck in traffic. It's almost like, you know, the song uh, Queensryche, Jet City Woman? Yes. Yeah, where it goes, da, 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 and it kind of drags and it, it's like the sonic equivalent to jet lag. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel like this song. There's there's something similar going on there musically. Yeah, that that riff is definitely it's kind of yeah. Where's my sound here? Yeah, it's it's almost like it's like a it's almost like a heavy Hendrix and horns kind of riff, but it is sort of just monotonous in a way. Where's my sound? Oh, here we go. It helps to plug in the guitar. And away we go. You know, which it's a strong riff, but you know, is it really that pleasing to the ear? I don't know. I like but the it, song, but again, I like the. I mean, again, I sort of like the storytelling aspect of it. You know what I mean? I, I like that in songs. Um, so it stands out for me. Still not my favorite, but not bad. It's Sorry, one of the most interesting songs on the album lyrically, for sure. Um, yeah, and that's why it stands out to me because I want to go back and listen to it a couple times. Yeah, it's in, yeah exactly. Any song that tells a story, I'm a sucker for. Yeah, I, I love the uh, I, the line. I take my fury out on the crowd. You know. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, 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 yeah. That is a great line. Yeah. Right, right. It's definitely like a very angry song. It's definitely not almost not a kiss song. Although apparently it was written when he was in Lips or something like that. Is that that's the story I read. Yeah, um, but it definitely has a very angry vibe to it, a very gritty vibe to it. It really, I mean, it definitely stands out. It's not necessarily even like a perfect Kiss song, but it's a good Peter Chris song. Like, why couldn't he have written that on a solo album? Right. Yeah. I mean, it kind of references a lot of other Kiss songs in some ways too, because 
you know, I make my living out on the streets is kind of referencing perhaps Black Diamond. Um, mm. I've got to get away, referencing getaway, mainline out of China is doing tonight, you know, another song that he's saying mm. mainline, obviously. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot going on in the in the song. And it, it you know, there, there's something about the song, I think that is unpleasant. <laughs> but I, I also think that it's it's one of the more interesting songs on the album. Yeah. Yeah, and to that point, I know as a kid when I got this record, this was one of the songs. It's probably the song of the record that I would I would skip because it definitely had like an angry vibe. I didn't like the way it felt hearing this song as a kid, and I just thought, you know, that that doesn't put me in a good mood. So I'm not, you know, I, I would usually skip it. But you know, now listen to it, you know a lot more. I, I definitely appreciate it more so than I did uh, back then. Um, no, I do like the fact that it, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's interesting too that the. Uh, the baseline you mentioned, John, it is great because it's um, there's a lot of sort of slapping and popping and octaves going right. on. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where this is where disco kiss keep rolling. It ro- yeah. keeps rolling, but then it almost like it's after this song that sort of disco kiss disappears. You know what I mean? That's where yeah. where Gene sort of it's almost almost like I mean I, I would assume they didn't record the songs in order, but it's almost like suddenly. I ain't funky no more. You know what I mean? The bass lines go back to the sort of standard Gene Simmons, you know, type things, which aren't bad, but, you know, they're just not the, the I've been informed by disco, you know, kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and too, I think I read that there were also some other songs that were in consideration, uh, songs like Rumble, Out of Control, There's Nothing Better, which a few of those later appeared on uh, Peter's first post-Kiss solo record, Out of Control, about a year or so later. Okay. Um but I also like the fact, too, that there's definitely a storyline there. Um, and I also read, too, that apparently Vinny, um, well, it was mentioned that Stan had mentioned, because I think he's a co-writer on this, Stan Pembridge, uh, the music apparently was you know, existed before the, you know, they, they were working on this record. But apparently uh, Vinny added a, a quote-unquote new storyline to the lyrics. Hmm. So the music remained oh, really? the same. So, you know, okay. which is interesting, too, because... Apparently, Vinny and Peter and Stan had done a demo, and the demo that Peter presented to Kiss was sort of the thing that helped convince Paul and Gene that they should use Vinny as a producer for this record. Okay. But then you go back to the point, Dave, that you made, you know, that Vinny was the guy that basically dropped the hammer and said, okay, Peter, you, you know, if the idea was we're going to make Peter happy and use his producer for a solo record, and then that guy's going to drop the hammer and say, your drumming's not to snuff, you're only going to play in one song. Well, you know, what a slap in the face that must have been to Peter. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I can't even imagine. I mean, I that's like, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's where everything always goes wrong in bands when you actually start worrying about making money. Well, <laughs> it's you know, it's not only that. I mean, I, I think people don't realize how often, um, you know, when you're put everything in a microscope under in the studio, um, and time is money and stuff, then you know, people just get replaced because it's all about getting the song done. In, you know, in tune, in time. I mean, there's so many examples. I was just reading about like the first Pretty Boy Floyd album, and they were talking about mm-hmm. how they used a studio basis for the whole thing. And um, you know, the Rat albums, right? Supposedly, they called in Kip Winger and Reb Beach to redo stuff on that album after hours, and just never told the guys. You know, so um, it happens more often than you would think. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I actually, yeah, I assume it happens kind of all the time. Um, 
but st- yeah, and and we sort of we mythologize. Mythologize? Mythologize. Mythologize. We mythologize Kiss as being this like super powerful, you know, that it was always all four of them working together. And of course it's not. I mean, especially with the time is money, they've got to get a record out. So yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I've supposedly met people that wrote entire albums for, you know, Cinderella and stuff like that um, and, and performed them without even Cinderella even knowing. You know. Really? Which album? <laughs> that was the third one, the bluesy album or whatever. Oh, Heartbreak Station. Yeah, it was apparently written all by that guy that supposedly produced uh, Robespierre and brought us out to L.A. Huh. Now, I have done extensive prior to the Internet. He could have told us anything. And we were like, OK. And I still sort of didn't believe him. Yeah. I know this sidetrack. You probably want to cut this out. But um, <laughs> the more now that I'm, I'm Internet whatever like there is no record of this guy doing anything like that i don't know you know but he was considered a fixer you know what i mean he would come in and write these albums and these songs uh for people so the story is that he told us that basically he wrote the entire third cinderella album and played on it and they didn't even know because they were so coked out well, uh, I will say true. this, you know, whoever wrote it, it's a great album, but it definitely yeah, it's, one of, it's actually one of my favorite albums, too. Yeah, it definitely like, sounds very different than anything they did before or after. Yes, agreed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the yeah, I mean, I've heard all sorts of horror, not horror stories, but stories about people taking other, you know, just taking over and writing people's entire albums. Yeah, I mean, the the book by Mixer Man talks about how, you know, they had mm. the big signed hop band that was signed for this huge advance. And by the time they were done recording the record, it was only like the drummer and the vocalist that were still actually playing on it. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally believe that, man. I mean, I, I, um, I don't know what kind of egos you have to have to not want to work all the way through it, but whatever. Yeah, or maybe it wasn't the drummer. Usually the drummer's the first to go. <laughs> yeah, very true. I know, right. The drummers supposedly built like tanks with their little soft flowers inside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, all right, so... Well, opposite of the, the fact that, you know, the, you know, the groups sort of splinter and, you know, disintegrate and other players are brought in, I guess... I'm corrected in this case because I think when we discussed the live two, I was saying that perhaps the the studio tracks on the side on four, side four were the last time the Kiss recorded together. But if you know this is all four guys, you know, firing in on this song, and this was the last time the original lineup recorded a song together, right? Yeah, Dirty Living. Dirty Living. Well, that, that, yeah. the one before Psycho Circus into the Void. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I sort of break it into you know. The old era and, and the new, you know, the yeah. old testament, new testament. But nonetheless, <laughs> yeah, in terms of, you know. Um, but also to the lyrics, I wonder, too, if this storyline that Vinny supposedly introduced uh, to the songwriting process, you know, there's all these sort of, you know, agitated vocals at the end where Peter's like, I can't wait, I can't wait, and why don't you set me free is like the last lyric you heard, you hear in the song. It's like, is this mm. just basically writing a song about Peter wanting to, you know, sort of write his exit or, you know, find a way to, you know, to get out with, you know, maybe it's, you know, it, I wouldn't be surprised if that was, you know, being considered at the time. That's really interesting that you said that because I've never heard the song that way, but now that you've said that, I don't think I'll ever be able to hear it any other way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to crank the volume up at the end, but he, he just lets out. Why don't you, and, and he emphasizes set me free. It's like, Oh, all right. I get it. I yeah. Get it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I buy that. And then last, 
and then last point I'll make too is you know, this is definitely in terms of guitar tones that solo. Um, you know, the fact that he can get you know Ace can get that kind of feedback straight away. Um, if you've ever played you know a Valino guitar, it is impossible to control those any any Luna neck guitar is about impossible to control in a live situation. They just squawk and and howl and feedback. And I, again, Ace, what guitar do you use in this track? You know, I got my guesses, but uh, yeah, it's 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 just piercing, but it, it, in a, you know in a pleasant way. It's a great solo by Ace. I think all of the solos on this record are great, and this is just another example of those. Uh, yeah. And, and his fine guitar work. The solos are great. I wish they had been EQ'd or filtered a little differently um, in terms of the production. Now we come up to the first Gene song, which... Uh, has there ever been a Kiss album before or since where Gene only ended up with two tracks on the whole album? I don't think so. You know, I was going to look into that because it's a little. This album's definitely Gene light, and I was going to try to figure that out, but I haven't. I haven't looked. I haven't done the research. Yeah. So this song, Charisma. I like it a lot. Apparently, it was a minor hit in Mexico, <laughs> which really <laughs> makes it even better for some reason. It it was a minor uh, I like hit. The, I, in it sounds like old Kiss. Um, the the vocals really good um, in it, and I I mean I don't really even mind the sort of like uh, the reverb on the on the chorus, you know, where it's like echoing and stuff like that. I kind of actually um, I dig it a lot, um, and I like the idea that sort of the self introspection of uh, Gene Simmons figuring out why people actually like him. And I guess it's based on someone actually saying to him, like, what is your charisma? Because, you know, he's he's not, there's nothing about him that says classically handsome guy. You know what I mean? I mean, he's definitely not ugly, but um, there is definitely sort of a um, self-assuredness that gives him his charisma more than, say, his good looks or whatever it is. So I, I really actually kind of dig the song. I like the full chorus. Um, it's catchy. I find myself singing it, you know, to myself sometimes. And I like, and I do like the lyrics. I wish the lyrics were a little better organized. You know what I mean? Like he seems to sort of bounce back and forth as to like, is it my money? Is it my fame? But it's like, I wish he would do a verse or it would just be like the trappings of me. And then another verse mm. that would be the trappings of my possessions. You know what I mean? But he seems to mm. bounce around between, you know, different subheadings. But of course, that's the, English teacher in me, so. Um, <laughs> so, what did you guys think? Mike? Sure, I'll go. Um, I think this is basically um, a rework of, of an old uh, Wicked Lester song uh, by the title of uh, Simple Type. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a, that main riff, okay. I think, was at the beginning please, of that song, right? Please demonstrate that to me, because I read that, and I went back, and I listened to Simple Type, and I didn't hear it at all. Okay, here's the reason why you're not hearing it. Let me just plug back in. I found a demo online. They only play the charisma riff at the beginning of the song, but on most of the bootlegs that came out, they don't play that riff. Ah, that could they, be it. So it's a... Uh... So 
So yeah, that is the beginning of the song, but then they never come back to it in the song. Oh, okay. It's if it, I had it, heard it, that, obviously I would have <laughs> I would have recognized yeah, that. Right yeah. Now. But but yeah, there I listened I found some bootleg on on YouTube and it's actually a really weird, interesting song because it's almost like it's from 73. It's almost like when there was still the potential that Kiss could have been like a jam band and it's got this like bluesy shuffle to it and Paul's singing some lyric about it was Friday the 13th in May and it like it, it doesn't really make any and then Gene comes in with these like really high piercing vocals out of nowhere that every time I hear him I'm just like whoa what is going on there like it's and then they they do this bluesy jam type part and it's really it's an interesting hodgepodge of a song but I understand why it never made it onto an album yeah yeah and also to John's point about, you know, the you know, where did the, the idea come to write this song? I think the co-writer, Howard Marks, I think he might have been one of their business managers, I guess, if you want to believe this, was sort of making fun of Gene saying, like, you know, what is your charisma? You know, what is it about you that, you know, is so interesting? Yeah, I guess. that's the story, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great song. I, you know, it's catchy. I like how the uh, the drum intro kind of, you know, catches you in, in a jarring way. You don't really expect it. Um, I love the pick slide at the beginning, you know, and more dramatic effect with, you know, sound effects, if you want to call it that. Um, and then I, yeah. And then I, I heard something else too, that, that I didn't hear, uh, you know, in all these years of listening to this record, if you put it on headphones, when you hear the drum intro come in, there's sort of this ring, a uh, ring E note happening. So it's almost as if, did they come in, you know, mid, you know, mid, mid session on this song? Like, is there some other music that happened before you know that it was committed to vinyl because it almost sounds like they just chopped this in from you know a longer cut of the, of the song hmm. okay if, yeah you'll hear it i think it's on the left side but um yeah but you know, the production wise with the guitars you know it's very you know like you know, sort of you know it's different you know and it's it's similar to the you know what i call the companion record unmasked but when you compare this to the albums like you know rock and roll over or even the solo albums the guitars are definitely produced or processed in a way um, but I also like too the uh, the breakdown, um, you know, where it goes, you know, it's sort of almost like spoken word, like you know the Christine sixteen breakdown. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that is cool. cool. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting when they do the the vocals where Gene goes down an octave, and I don't know if that's with an effect or if he's actually singing that low, but uh, it's an interesting arrangement for sure. Um, I mean, you know, it's kind of a cheese ball song, but I I think that's catchy enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun. He's balls good. So so here's it's clever. I I actually I mean just the word charisma. How many songs have you heard with the word charisma in them? You know what I mean? Like that that gives it. You know what I mean? That takes it out of the realm of generic and puts it into at least sort of you know the realm of almost clever. Yeah. So so two things about it being a hit song or minor hit song in Mexico. Um, I believe they went down. Uh, to Mexico, I want to say right after the Elder came out, and it was already clear that the Elder was not doing well, and and uh, was uh, not going to be a big hit. And so they, there's a clip of them, I believe, on Mexican TV where they're playing songs, and one of the songs they choose to play, or at least lip sync to, is Charisma. So they're in the Elder costumes singing Charisma. I'm pretty sure wow. that, yeah. Um, <laughs> and another funny thing about that is. This sounds like one of those Kiss urban legends, but I've actually recently been able to confirm that it's true. Um, so Gene Simmons was down at Comic-Con for 
something. I think it may have just been a new Kiss comic or something along those lines. <laughs> Apparently, at some point that he was down at Comic-Con, uh, a guy from Mexico approached him and said, hey, my Kiss tribute band is playing in Mexico tonight. Would you like to come down to Mexico and sit in and sing Charisma with us? And he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> so <laughs> Gene Simmons went from Comic-Con, crossed the Mexican border to sit in with this Mexican Kiss tribute band that he had never heard before. And so, and so the thing is, he didn't remember the lyrics to Charisma at Charisma. all. So like literally 15 minutes before he was going to go on, he said, you know what? I don't remember the lyrics. And he said to like the, the guy, the assistant, you know, that was working the gig or whatever. He said, go listen to this song and write down the lyrics so I can read them. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and he, you know, held the lyric sheet and sang it and kind of half flubbed it or whatever. But um, it's one of those crazy things that I think really, tells you a lot about Gene Simmons, which is that as much as people say, oh yeah, he's only in it for the money, there is a part of him that just lives to be Gene Simmons on stage, the center of attention, expressing himself any way that he can. And and I think yeah, yeah, that yeah. story is just just illustrates that point. Yeah, he's, it seems like also an example of he's he seems like the type, the type of guy that, you know, Normally, if you make that request, then he you would expect him to to deny the request that he wouldn't have any interest in it at all. Yeah. So if you're going to suggest that and he would take you up on it, then you've got to take action. You've got to you know do your work to make sure that you know he's accommodated. And, you know he's going to you know do what he's supposed to do. But yeah, I I, I can see him sort of you know surprising somebody with that kind of response and doing that. Funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we didn't mention this before, but on sure knows something that's Paul doing the solo, right? Yes, I was going to mention that we get to Magic Touch, but yeah, that is Paul uh, doing a solo that is very similar to uh, the type of solo he does on uh, Word Without Heroes on The Elder. He's got a definite style, mm -hmm. um, and that, that, yeah, that, it's a great solo, you know. It is, and now that we're on Ma Magic Touch, I believe he's doing the solo for that song, right? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny because I know when I was uh, working with Rich and Mr. Speed, we would, we, we, you know, this is obviously pre-internet we would sit there and debate back and forth well you know that doesn't sound like paul plane or that doesn't sound like ace and i would say well okay fine well you're the paul then mm, we decided that you know rich when we play when we play this song in rehearsal that he would play the solo you know so um yeah but it, from, from what i've read now recently that it, supposedly it is paul playing the guitar solo on this song and apparently he also apparently he also plays bass on this song as well yeah which again sort of bolsters our theory that in a lot of ways this is just a continuation of the mm -hmm. solo albums you know, if he's playing bass, guitar, and the solo and singing it, then, you know, he's kind of using the other guys as background vocals, really. Yeah. And, and tell me what you guys think, too. I mean, I've read that, you know, Paul claims that, you know, the song got mucked up, so to speak, uh, when they recorded it, um, as did, you know, he says a lot of songs on Dynasty and Unmasked. And I guess, you know, he claims that the previous version or demo version is really powerful and that you know, got, sort of got whipped out. And he thinks that it might have been the wrong vocal interpretation. Um, I guess he was supposedly was trying to find his voice as a singer, wanted to go someplace, but you know didn't really get there. I, you know, to me, the song, you know, I want to see what you guys think. It, this sounds like one of the more sort of natural, you know, rock songs on the record. It doesn't sound that as produced as, as the other songs on the album. So I don't know how much, you know, 
how you know if, if it wimped out, then you know I'm you know the the, the demo version must have been you know way heavier or bigger. I I, I don't see what's missing in terms of strength yeah, on think, this song. I don't know where he's getting with that. I mean, it's a cool riff, but I mean, it, I mean, I honestly, if there's a song on this album that's filler, I'm gonna say it's Magic Touch. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing in it that really. It's got a cool riff or whatever, but I don't really see. Yeah, it would it would have to be crazy heavy. I mean, it's it's like a, a nice generic rocker. It's not a bad song. I wouldn't skip it. You know what I mean? But I don't. I don't totally like the riff is great, and it, and I like the fact that it opens with the uh, chorus. You know what I mean? I think that's kind of a cool uh, way to do it. But um, the songs oh, are yeah. out mm-hmm. as being like super amazing to me. I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I don't. Okay, sure. Like I don't know, Dave. What do you think? I don't. I mean, the production's a little muddy. I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, compared to some of the other songs, um, I could hear this song on his solo album for sure. Um, you know, it, it's not one of my favorite songs, but at the same time, if they drop this into the set list, I would be blown away. I would be like, "Oh yeah, let's do this." You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, it definitely, I bet you it sounds really awesome, really loud. Yeah. Yeah, much like a song like I Want You or, you know, those sort of you know, riffy with space, you know, types of songs. Um, interesting, too, we, 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 we compared this to our discussion about uh, the Peter Crystal album. There's also a lot of minor chords in the verses and, and the chorus of this song as well. Which yeah, makes you wonder that. how much yeah. of that is an influence of Vinny. Yeah. Where, you know, Vinny goes, you know, you can put a minor chord in a rock song. It doesn't have to all be root and fifth or whatever. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, when you compare it to um, When You Like to Know Me on the Paul Stanley album, um, you know, a lot of those chords, you know, they're not really defined as, as major or minor in that main riff. He's just kind of letting the high E and the B strings ring out, not really defining that yeah. in that portion of the chord. Um, you know, but I mean, either way, I mean, it, you know. It's probably, if anything, it's probably the, the most non-disco song on the record. Yes, you know? exactly. It's like, right. yeah. Yeah. I buy that. I love the breakdown where, you know, yeah. I mean, and that that line, you kind of, it's hard to hear the lyrics, but, um, you know, supposedly, and in the night in the crowd, she'll be there as she prances by, you watch while your dreams all fade away. Um, yeah. Kind of a nod to Strutter, too. You know, when she wants, she'll pass you by. She prances by, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the production on that's great, too. Those chord changes, they're just beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Speaking of Strutter, though, I forgot to mention on Charisma, you probably caught it. Um, the drum fill at four minutes, six seconds um, after the low voice Charisma. That is the the Strutter uh, intro drum fill. Is that the do 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 do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't catch that, but. (laughs) And is that played by Peter, or is that played by Anton Fig? That would be Anton Fig, right? Right. Anton, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's like Mm -hmm. he's like shoving it in his face now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Does this sound familiar, Peter? Classic. Right. Right. Peter, I'll meet you out in the back. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Here, here's to your classic drum fill <clears throat> there you go <laughs> right i'm doing it with one hand my own time. <laughs> all right okay so hard time which is actually i think my favorite song on the album because i love the slice of life and there's it and and i'll be perfectly honest it sounds like you wrote it david lucarelli <laughs> the vocal delivery ah. sounds exactly how you uh sing songs that i've heard you sing before okay uh 
and and I'm, that's that's a compliment. You know what I mean? It's just the way that he sort of delivers it and gets it sort of matter of factly out and enunciates everything that he's saying. You know, what I, I really. Uh, I, I, I really, like I, I take it as a compliment. It's funny that you mentioned that because this is a Kiss song that Mike and I have actually played together live in Dame Fortune. We played it as a cover. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great. Did you sing it? No, I think Mike sang it. Yeah. Okay. Well, it definitely has a nice. I mean, it has a nice. Again, I love the story songs. It has a great story to it. I love that line. We go out to the park and space our heads out, which is freaking great. Um, and then. There's sort of a weird whistle song in it, or sound in it that I kept picking up that I thought was really yeah. a neat little thing to it. Yeah, there's there, a whistle uh, and there's there, like a glockenspiel or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that was a really neat thing to it. I, I liked it a lot. I really like it because it's it's very um, direct in what it's about. You know what I mean? And I guess it's sort of, I mean, I guess he's glad that he's gone from those days, you know, because it always has to have a moral that says, you know, I'm glad I'm no longer you know, that gang member, but still, it definitely, I love the story, the story too, all the, all the details and stuff like that. I think Ace's songs are sort of the most impervious on this album to anything that Vinny is trying to do to lessen the, the power of the songs and make them more pop. I mean, just the way that Ace writes his songs, you know, it's an, it's inherently going to be a, a hard rock song and there's only so much production you can do to it to you know polish it up and whatnot and i think that's why his material on this album is so strong mm -hmm. yeah 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 agree i like it a lot especially when you do consider that the fact that you know this is basically the ace solo album lineup it's it's ace doing all the guitars and bass and you got anton playing drums and it, in yeah, most yeah, cases yeah, yeah. i think with the exception of save your love um, I want to say that I think Ace is doing most of the background vocals on his tracks, you know, without, you know, if you want to call it interference from Gene Paul or, or Vinny at this point. I think a lot of the background vocals are Ace on, on this album, with the exception of Save Your Love. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, he, he's focused, you know, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you expect? But it, to John's point about the, the whistles, this is how clever the whistles are. I, I listened to it today, I just realized it. The first whistle is in the, the second half of the first verse. And it's just before the out on the street vocal, which is more of like a street hustler, you know, you know, I can't do the whistle where people put the fingers in their mouth and do that, you know, strong whistle right. to, yeah, to draw yeah, attention. Yeah. So then, you yeah, that whistle right before the out on the street lyric. And then the second whistle, um, it's just before that we go to school. It's more of like a gym teacher whistle. Ah. You know I mean? So yeah, yeah, there's yeah. two different kinds of whistles here, and they're both appropriate for, you know, the vocal that is delivered you know, following the whistle. So you know, I'm sure they're just having fun with that in the studio, which right. is cool to hear. Yeah. As, as an art teacher, I would refer to that as a motif. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They repeat that. Use the, they use it a couple of times, and I think it's clever that they carry it through twice in that song. That's, that's really funny. that's really interesting. I mean, we actually, you and I, Mike, we used the whistle and the days are just packed. And, yeah. And, you know, I, I, if somebody asked me why we did that, I wouldn't necessarily have a good explanation aside from the fact that sometimes a song just needs a whistle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Um, and what a bargain Ace gives you two in this one. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Two whistles, no way. Yeah. <laughs> it's lyrically the strongest song on the album, I think, by far. Yes. Um, you know, and, and 
it makes me think of that, like the beginning of NWA's Straight Outta Compton, when you know, the, right. voice, the voice comes in and he goes, you are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> because, because everything that he says rings true. And, and it rings true in a way that doesn't sound forced, you know, where he's like, okay, Ace, we're going to do a rock against drug ad and you have to denounce taking drugs because drugs are bad but you know just the fact that you know he says yeah we go to the park and we'd space our heads out and we called it fun but there was some doubt i mean the idea that even back then he thought like is this really you know all it's cracked up to be is this the best use of our time or are we just kind of you know doing this to do it and kind of wasting our lives here i mean is so much more real and powerful and 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 heavy than you know ace coming out and saying don't do drugs kids you know <laughs> right drugs are bad yeah okay. yeah yeah no i think ace has again ace has some great uh, personal stories to add to it i almost feel bad that he left the band or whatever or couldn't keep it together because who knows what they would have been doing in the 90s you know what i mean or the yeah it would have been kind of interesting. Well, supposedly Gene called him and asked him to come back on, you know, uh -huh. at least one occasion, and he wouldn't do it. Huh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he put out some pretty decent solo albums. I mean, well, at least the first Fraley's Comet is actually pretty good. And yeah. I've, I don't know. I've never really followed anything after that. Yeah, real quick. Trouble walk. I mean, trouble walking is also good, and some of the more recent Great. stuff. Uh, second sighting is probably the least of them. Sounds okay. sounds a little rushed. <laughs> That's my my quick review. Yeah, and I think Ace probably wrote about half the songs on that record, whereas he had a lot more rights on Trouble Walking and uh, the Fraley's Common album. You know, it's about half Ace, half uh, Todd. Uh, yeah, a lot yeah. more keyboards on, on second sighting. You know, that's that's a whole that's a whole discussion, other. I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyhow, love hard times. This the second Kiss song to use a, a title from Charles Dickens, right? You got great expectations. You got hard times. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, from a songwriting standpoint, uh, it's interesting how you know the, the bridge in this song is really cool. I love it. It's like a you know it's got that sort of descending D to C, you know, the C with the B in the bass. Um, interesting that Ace ends the song with the bridge. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, you know, the bridge musically uh, to you know, sort of write out the song, you know, again, it's clever songwriting. And how about that guitar solo? I mean, it's screaming, but then, you know, he kind of half it is like a, a regular guitar solo. And the second half is, again, another backwards guitar solo. I thought that was backwards. Yeah. 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 When it goes to the left speaker, it goes backwards. Yeah. 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 Very cool. cool. All right. Gene's second song on the album. X-Ray Eyes. I like the arpeggio at the beginning. Like there seems to be like arpeggiated chords over top of power chords or whatever. Am I, did I read that right? Or is yeah, I think some so. of them the open chords or whatever, but it's, um, I like that. And I, I mean, I like the, it's a clever title, obviously seeming, but I, I couldn't really follow it lyrically and didn't want to invest the time to really follow it lyrically. You know what I mean? Well, lyrically, uh, lyrically it's kind of like Gene's take on the Who's I Can See for Miles, right? Right, mm. yeah, exactly. That's But it, even that, it wasn't, it didn't get hit home very well. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like I kept this like, wait, what is he saying? You know, and I don't know. Well, okay, so, I mean, the whole X-ray eyes things to me is, 
there's uh you know there's obviously superman who has x-ray eyes there's the 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 ads in the back of the comic books for x-ray specs there's the movie in i think the 1950s the man with x-ray eyes um that also plays up the whole thing you know looking at women naked because you can see through their clothes and that kind of thing uh, so um uh, okay. i think these are all nods to to that but also just the idea that this woman has been less than truthful with him, but Gene, in his infinite perception, can see right through her and and knows the truth, which is that uh, he is the one he's for her. Liar. And she's a liar. Yeah. <laughs> liar, liar. All right. I got nothing else to really say about it. I didn't, you know what I mean? It didn't stand out to me that much. Um, so, Mike, what do you think? Um, well, I'll follow up on your point about the arpeggiated uh, chords at the beginning, because in a way that verse is sort of like an, an advanced version of Calling Dr. Love, you know, where one guitar is mm -hmm. doing you know, the root and the fifth, and the other guy's doing the jangly parts, you know, higher on the strings, or high, you know, on the mm -hmm. other side of the, of the fretboard. Um, and again, too, apparently, again, with the, the solo album vibe, apparently this is Gene Simmons, uh, at least Gene is doing some of the rhythm guitars on this track. Yeah. So okay. again, you know, it's sort of like everybody's working in silos here. Um... But then again, too, you know, it, it's funny because it's a bit of a combination of Calling Dr. Love and also Christine 16, because in the verse, you got that real sort of percussive bass line. Oh, if I have my sound here. Um, that happening with the piano or the keyboards. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a very similar approach to Christine 16 in that case. Um, and the distorted bass, you know, sounds like Gene as well. Um, yeah, I, I, funny, I was, I was listening to this today and I thought, well, why does it, it, not just because of the fact that the word eyes is in the title, you know, much like uh, Private Eyes from Hollow Notes, but this song reminds me, that I, I, I could see Hollow Notes singing this song. Mm, okay. You know, it, maybe it, it's not just because, of the, you know, again, the use of the word eyes in the title, but the production and the piano and the verse and the ahs in the vocals are sort of, you know, you know weaving vocal harmonies after the, you know, the line x-ray. Ah, it just sounds to me like a, it's an interesting melody. And when yeah. I hear that melody, I think of Polynos for some reason. I don't know why, but I do. Yeah, I can see that. And then let me, let me ask you guys this too, because there's that riff in the, the song. It's a very Gene riff. Where's my sound here? I'm off again. Here we go. That's also a riff or an idea that was used on the Elder, right? Is that on Under the Rose? Yes. Do 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 do. Yeah, that is yeah. Under the Rose. Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I thought so. Um. Yeah. And then I guess the last thing I have on it is uh, the guitar solo is interesting because it's almost mm -hmm. a very Jimi Hendrix Van Halen, and we mentioned Binky Phillips who. You know, I suppose it was, you know, a point of reference for the calling out solo with the uh, the extended bend stuff. It, it's you know, it, it sounds more or less like a Gibson guitar. It sounds more like a Strat guitar with a whammy bar. And you know, is Ace doing that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's Paul. You know, yeah, it's probably probably Ace. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a cool solo, but it, it you know, it, there are other occasions where there's a solo on the record that doesn't not sound like Ace doing his classic Ace licks. He's just, just Kind of just going off and you know getting feedback and yeah, way having fun with it. I would put it into the category of of one of the Ace Fairly Noise solos. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because there are definitely some. Yeah, he's he's not playing scales. 
Yeah, he's not playing licks on this one. He's just kind of going for it. So yeah, I mean, strange ways. You know, to a certain extent, God of Thunder. Uh, yeah. Almost human. Almost human. This yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but interesting. Now I'm going to do research to see how many songs Gene has on other records because it, it's definitely Gene Light. There are only two Gene songs on this record. It just you feel like something's missing there. You know. I was just going to say, he doesn't even have a song on side one. You know, really? Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But I guess wow. because he's supposedly playing those funky bass lines, that puts him out front or something. Even though we may not believe that he's actually the one doing it. But I, he, he, I mean, he films that video, so he's got to be playing it. He at least taught it to himself or um, uh, <laughs> should know something or whatever. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that is interesting. Maybe it was this when he was starting to explore acting? No, this is a little before that. Um, So, final song on the album Ace Fraley with the closer, Save Your Love. Again, another barn burner, man. I freaking love this song. It's like that. um, I love the line, teach me things I already knew. Yeah. That's freaking great. I love that. And then the chorus is save your, you know what I mean? That's like, that's like punk rock before punk rock. You know what I mean? Like it's got a good, you know, gang vocal there that you know, totally gets you pumped. I love it. I well, love that song. It, it's the same rhythm as uh, what? Give me some lovin', right? That song. Yeah. Um, mm. but, but it's interesting what he does with it because there's opposing motion going on where the, uh-huh. the vocals are are going lower as the baseline is going higher and so you uh, have this like interesting contrast and building tension and then yeah ace is just barking out over that i mean right. it, it really yeah and i love the call and response thing happening between the guitar part and his vocals and the verse yep. you know where they're kind of yeah. talking to each other and then they kind of overlap and um yeah, I mean it's really it's just such a strong another song that if ace were ever to break it out and play it live i would just be like wow this is great <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny that the, you know some of the top songs on here are all ace you know what i mean again maybe ace wasn't dumb about leaving <laughs> but i yeah i mean I, I love that song sorry mike you, what do you you have anything that to save your life Sure, I was going to say that uh, it's interesting the way he starts the song. The, the riff is cool, uh, which also that riff reminds me of um, uh, some of the riffs in uh, God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Dun, 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 you know, those things. But I was this hit me today. Um, he sort of starts with the end of the chorus, right? Wait. Now, the Stones, like, you know, let's say that's a very Stones approach to, you know, a song because the stones will sometimes start a song with the end of a chorus. Like take for instance, um, stones before they make me run. And then they go into the verse and Ace does the similar thing here where he's got, you know, the end of the chorus begin be, becoming the beginning of the song. I just I find it interesting. That. Yeah, you're right. Hmm. There's another reason it kicks ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool, man. Yeah. I didn't even pick that up. Yeah, that's, a yeah good, that's one good of my point. favorite songs. And again, this is one of those. I mean, sorry, do you want to add anything else? Because I was going to do my oh, overview. Sure, I was just going to add, you know, reinforce your point about the bass lines, John. Uh, it, you know, it's 
interesting because he's sort of just weaving around the octaves. Like he'll, he'll go low, he'll go high on the bass line. Uh-huh. You know, while the, the guitar is going from the A to the A suspended D. Uh, but it's just it's a great arrangement. It's there's there's no wasted space. There's no you know you know flubbing anything here. It's just it's a clean take and it's it's really well done. And it's, then it's you one of, yeah yeah. It's one of those classic rock songs that gets everything done in three minutes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just, yeah. It's one of those, and people always ignore it because it's sort of almost too fast or it's under the radar. There's tons of these songs out there. Um, you know what I mean? You know, it's always like the near end of the album where they put that big, fast burner on there that, you know, never becomes a hit. People never really remember. But this, to me, is one of those, like, good, classic, solid rock songs. Nothing wrong with it, you know? That reminds me, the, the break part where he goes, you know, you know, that that whole thing is yeah. exactly the same riff and tempo as the instrumental track in the soundtrack to The War Years, which Desmond Child was involved in writing and makes me think that like at some point, you know, there was some interaction between Ace and Desmond where he was like, oh, I don't know what I should do, you know, with the the bridge here, Curly. And he goes, well, how about something like this? You know, I mean, like. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I'll buy that. Could be. You know, or just, you know, you're in the room, you know, and, and you know, think, you hear things and you use, you know, they get used later. Could be. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's the exact same thing. I know. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It's in the, yeah. Because it's basically the baseline. And Ace is doing those cold gin chords. Yeah, in the bridge. Yeah, in the bridge. That's great. Funny uh, too how on on the lyrics, um, his delivery. Like sometimes he's you know, cool and you know collected, and then then he's you know sort of being sarcastic. I think one of my favorite lines is uh, right before the guitar solo. I think he says, you know, we had some good times, but now they're gone. So long. But even in between. But now they're gone and so long. There's either like a, a sound effect or like a, you know, like a vocal thing. He's like, uh-huh. you know, you know well, so long. You know, it's just, it hit me today. I thought, wow, okay. You know, you know, you can tell that he's he's, he's pretty secure in, in, in where he wants to be with this relationship. So, yeah, absolutely. Very true. All right. So before we, uh, we, we should do our overall take on the album and then we'll get into uh, the best of the solo albums. Uh, I didn't do the best of the solo albums, guys. You may want to just do it. Maybe can we postpone it till next week? Because I totally spaced doing it until I just got on. Okay, we can do that. Sure, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Thanks, man. I I apologize. I totally. I think part of this was because this album was such a freaking breath breath of fresh air um, <laughs> compared to the solo albums that I was just like, oh my god, this is solid all the way through, and there's. You know what I mean? I'm, I don't feel like I'm doing a chore here. These are all great songs. Because I was thinking, I, when I was made for loving you was over, I was like, oh, I have, this is just gonna suck from here on out, isn't it? Because I don't remember this album very well. And then it's 2000 Man, and then it's you know, sure enough, something. And again, I'm like, okay, it's starting to suck. It's starting. Oh, that chorus. You know, I mean, it really was just. It's just a better album than any of the solo albums at all. You know, and it makes I don't, me. Think I mean, that. it's definitely a better album than Peter Chris's solo album. I'll give you that. <laughs> you know? and, oh, really? And so probably. I mean, I think it's in terms of like song structure and songs that stand out. Like, I don't. I mean, I still. And again, guys, you are the ones that are the true Kiss fanatics. I'm. I mean, I thought I was a fan, but I am not a fan compared to you guys. Um, I mean, I still think I'm more of a fan than a lot of people. Um, but there are stuff in those solo albums that I do not remember 
at all. Even after we did the review, even after I listened to these albums three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, um, where I was like, I don't, re I don't remember a single song from Paul Solo album. I remember Ace's solo album, and I remember Gene's solo album because Gene's solo album was so damn weird. You know what I mean? And I like that it was so damn weird, but I mean, Paul's and Peter's, I don't remember a single song. Like nothing, I can't start humming anything from it or remember anything. Okay. Well, I would I would take Ace's solo album or Paul's solo album over this album, but that's me. So. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. I can see that. I just... Well, uh, okay. All right. So what's your overall take on the album? You know, I listening to it now, I haven't listened to it in a while. I was actually surprised at how much I liked it and how, how strong I, I thought it was overall because... But the thing about it is, I think overall, it comes across as being kind of lightweight, you know, and, and part of that is the production. And part of it, I think, is that just lyrically, a lot of the songs are songs addressed to girls, you know, about she'd done me wrong or the relationship's over. I mean, it's interesting to me, Kiss was going out on tour at this time. Gene had just discovered Van Halen. They were mm -hmm. having ACDC, Judas Priest, and Iron Maiden <laughs> opening Iron for them yeah. on these tours at their own bequest. I mean, Gene went to the Roxy, discovered ACDC, said, yeah, I want these guys to open for us. You know, heard Judas Priest, heard... It wasn't like the record company was fostering these bands on them. These guys listened to these bands liked them, said, let's go out and tour with them. And yet somehow, like this new, hyper-aggressive, heavier approach that they, you know, valued in the bands that were opening for them didn't really seem to reflect in the type of record that they were making somehow. It's like, it's almost like if they were choosing opening bands that were reflective of the music on Dynasty, they could have had like the Knack open for them or somebody. And they weren't doing that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a weird dichotomy that's starting to build between like, you know, what they're doing live and, and what and the bands that they like opening for them and the type of record that they're that they're putting out. Um, their management at the time, I think, was trying to make them all things to all people. This is where they coined the phrase super kiss. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have kiss color forms and kiss shrinky dinks and all this stuff and, you know, kiss, uh, color me posters and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and we ate that crap up. We did. And it's funny to me that I think at the time it was considered a failure because the, the dynasty tour, um, the dynasty right. tour lost losing. money yeah, in yeah. the States. It wasn't well received. Um, yeah, the, the attendance was way down, but I really think that flash forward to 1996 it was the kids of our generation that grew up and were kids when Dynasty was out that really came out in droves and supported the reunion tour. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, it may have seemed like a failure at the time, the fact that they were this circus-like, you know, Vegas-like thing, um, but ultimately it paid off for them down the road, you know, how yay many years later. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll buy that. That makes sense. Because this is the kiss I remember as a kid. You know what I mean? So go ahead, Mike. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. 
Well, no, it's definitely the case that I remember as a kid as well, because you got to realize that there was major promo done uh, for the, this album. I mean, they were on ABC 2020, PBS 321 Contact, various NBC shows, the infamous uh, Tom Snyder interview. They were, you know, really pushing things. I just remember being really happy that I got a new Kiss record at this point. I think it had been about two, you know, a, a band, about a span of two years where you basically you got the solo albums and compilations, but wow, this is the new Kiss record, and there it is. Um, but I, you know, in terms of the direction, I think, you know, sure, if you have all these sort of, you know, new wave of British heavy metal bands opening for you, maybe, you know, I, I look at it this way. This, to me, seems like the album where they were going down the road of, again, trying to maybe reach a wider audience to show they're a little more sophisticated. You know, they, they've done the heavy rock thing. And, you know, we can do something more than that. We can do disco. We can do rock. We can do, you know, you know more poppy um, commercial type rock and roll. But that being said, that really speaks more to the album. But when you go to the tour that followed, uh, the only songs from this album they were playing on the tour were I Was Made For Loving You in 2000 Man. So it wasn't like it got a, you know, the tour was like a big, you know, album support. It more was like, less was supporting a lot of things, including the solo albums, because they were doing a couple of songs from the solo records, too. Right. Um, but in terms of, but, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what, what they were able to do on stage with, you know, these sort of heavier opening acts. I mean, Dave, I, John, were you... Th- the '79 show or, or no? In, in no, I, you... uh, my first kiss, my first concert ever was seeing Kiss on the Lick It Up tour. I know that you guys uh, okay. made it to the what the Creatures tour or whatever. No, the we saw the Dynasty tour in '79. We saw this one. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. But my, my point being, we've all experienced loud Kiss shows. I don't remember anything about the 1979 show, uh, you know, about Kiss not being heavy or powerful or loud. I mean, I think they could hold their own no matter what songs they were playing. But my point being. Yes, the album is definitely a, you know, more produced record. And it's a little more lightweight than previous records. But then again, the, the tour support was really focused on things other than this record. Um, but again, I, 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 you know, it's not my favorite Kiss record. I think, you know, the production in a way sort of surprised me as a kid. It definitely seemed like a different band yeah. uh, that I was used to. Um, but at the same time, you know, I was just happy to know that, you know, all four guys were in the record and they were singing songs and, you know, all of a sudden, I realized that oh wait a minute this 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 band these bands actually do shows they play in arenas I might go to see this and there you go and then think about all of the refinements they did in terms of their stage presentation you had you know guitars flying to the lighting rigs lighting rigs Gene flying to the lighting rig um, there were all sorts of other crazy special effects that we won't get into that were supposedly going to be used or considered that they didn't do but you know I mean yeah. Just th- this era alone is a very special time for me, and, and I appreciate the record for that. Um, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite Kiss record, but there's a lot of things on it that I, that I do um, in- enjoy, um, you know, from time to time. Yeah, for both Mike and I, it was our first concert ever, and I was in th- third grade, and uh, the night changed my life, you know. I mean, it's still, if I think about it, you know, sends a chill up, up my spine, and resonates to this day. If I hadn't gone to that show, I don't know that I'd be the person that I am today. Um, so uh, a couple things about the album in general, too. Mm-hmm. Really unbelievably cheaply made in terms of the physical album and the inserts to the album. Like this album came with a poster that might as well have been like printed on toilet paper, like just the process of pulling the poster out from the record 
was almost impossible to get it out without tearing it because it was like cut with like razor blades or something. I mean, and it was such thin paper. I remember too, you couldn't even play this record. I mean, granted, I, I didn't have a state-of-the-art hi-fi stereo system, but it would skip like multiple times all throughout the opening song unless I put a penny on the on the head of the needle to like force it down into the groove. Like, I don't know who at Casablanca said, like, we could save five cents if we use the leftover petroleum from the, you know, outtakes <laughs> of the record or whatever. And, you know, do we really have to put the, uh, print the poster on actual paper or could we just use, I mean, you know, it was air. Air. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's really, really bad. I mean, and <laughs> did you notice that too, Mike? Oh yeah, the minute I hung it on my wall in my bedroom at my mom's house in 1901, man, it, I had to put tape on the back of the, the poster because it fell apart straight away. Yeah, and I recently picked up another copy with you know the poster, and I'm afraid to open the poster because I'm afraid it's going to fall apart. You know, so it stays in the record. <laughs> I guarantee you, it will. I mean, like, it's it's yeah. I have a vivid memory. My sister was away at college, and we were going to visit her and whatnot, and I was talking to somebody. And I'm sure I was a bored little kid. And, uh, you know, they were like, oh, what do you like to do? And I was like, well, I like to listen to Kiss, you know. And and and, and, and one of my sister's friends was like, oh, I, I like to listen to Kiss, too. You know, I just got the new album. You want to, you know, go listen to it? And I was like, okay. And I remember sitting around in a circle with my sister and her friends. And they put on I Was Made For Loving You. And they all liked the song. And none of them seemed like they were actual Kiss fans like they like their introduction to Kiss was Dynasty, and so it it, it had like a kind of a weird awkward feeling. Like I, I thought it was cool that we were all sitting around listening to Kiss, but I also felt like uh, something something's not quite right here. Right, yeah. <laughs> David, a third wow. grade mind, you're all posers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, you're not cool. Something that we didn't mention about this record, too, this is one of the few times that they released extended mix uh, singles of the singles, mm -hmm. right? So there's a 7-inch and a 12-inch of uh, I Was Made For Loving You. I want to say the flip sides might have been what? Uh, Dirty Living and Sure Knows Something? I'm not sure. I think there's two different versions. I think there's also a version that has Dirty Living and Hard Times. I could be wrong. Okay. There might be, yeah. Which is of the period, because I remember the Stones released like a 13-minute version of Miss You from uh, their, their Some Girls album. So I guess, you know, it was, you know, again, that was their, you know, quote-unquote disco track on that album. So no wonder Kiss did something similar with this one. Yeah. I, I, I never heard it. I'll, I'll try to, you know, find a copy somewhere and check it out. I'm curious enough. Yeah, I never, I can't say I've listened to it, too. I, I, I expect I know what it's going to be. I mean, you know, but maybe it'll be, we'll yeah. be surprised. And interestingly enough, I read too that uh, apparently this 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 record was recorded at Electric Lady Studios in New York City or Manhattan, we're going to call it. Um, and I suppose it was the last record that was recorded on the old recording console that uh, I guess Jimi Hendrix had used. Okay, so I read that too. Yeah. Okay. Last one. Yeah. Apparently, they were doing they were considering something where they would have creatures emerging from a flying saucer on stage, only to be destroyed by Gene's fire breathing. And then Dr. Doom would supposedly appear from the flying saucer and instruct the creatures to capture Paul and imprison him. And then Dr. Doom would you know, blow up the box that Paul was imprisoned in. There's all these crazy ideas. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, there's a ton of production value, but you've got basically, you know, a 70-minute set. How are you going to fit all this in there? I mean, there must have been 
so many things that they consider that would never fly, but it's fun to know that these ideas were on the table and, and discussed. I'd never heard that's, that. That's, I mean, I had heard that obviously they tried the laser eye um, yeah. effect yeah, with Paul. Yeah, I think Paul that didn't work because it would kill him. Yeah, it might blind him or blind the audience or both. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it would have been cool if they had been able to pull that off because that would have been both from the comic and from the movie. The movie, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and supposedly they invested like a million dollars into a whole laser system that also didn't work. Um, yeah. So. Right. They were suing the guys up until like two years ago or something. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyhow, um, that is Dynasty. I guess next week we will take a look at what is essentially the sister album to Dynasty, uh, Unmasked. Yes, indeed. Me right. too. Till then, right. take cool. care. Stay safe. All right, guys. Yeah, you too. Good, good take, talking to you. You take too. care. Likewise. Bye bye.